Father, we gather this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our Savior, our coming King, the one in whom we have put our trust and our hope, the one who has sent the Comforter that he might speak to us, that he might teach us from the Word. Lord, I thank you for Christian fellowship and for the opportunity that we have not only to encourage one another, but to pray for one another. And may we really be people of prayer in support of one another and in support of the work which you're doing here in Reading and, and around the world. We're really thankful, Father, that we have the freedom to study the Word of God as we will be able to this morning, and that we don't have to fear um, repression, and that you have freed us, Lord, from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. May we have eyes to see today. I pray that you'll bless the service which is going on right now and the other Sunday school classes throughout this uh, facility today. Just be present, we ask, in each class, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, those of you who are visiting, <laughs> you've come at the acme, the apogee, <laughs> if you will, the high point of recent lessons that we've been having relative to um, the life of Joseph. And we've been, of course, moving in great detail through the uh, last several, well, through all of Genesis up to this point, uh, particularly looking recently at the life of Joseph. And to kind of summarize and bring us to the point today so that we can appreciate the significance of these first few verses of the 45th chapter of Genesis. Let me simply remind you that Joseph's brothers had returned to Egypt because of the need, because of the impending hunger of their family. The drought had stricken the whole Near Eastern world, and they had to go back to obtain grain because Egypt was blessed uh, with the grain supply because they had stored it for seven years because God had used Joseph to be the man of destiny, uh, not only for, for Egypt, but of course specifically for Israel. They had been told by Joseph that they could not return to the land of Egypt unless they brought Benjamin. He had never seen Benjamin since Benjamin was you know, the typical knee-high to a grasshopper, and uh, he wanted to see that young man, and he particularly wanted to know how he was faring, since he was, of course, then the, the apple of his father's eye since Joseph was gone. And he wanted to know how he had been treated and how he was being treated by his brothers, and so he insisted that he be brought to Egypt. He had seen that his brothers were changed in the encounters he'd had in the first uh, in trip they, that, in which they came to Egypt, which was months, maybe even a year before. And now at this point, he had seen a change. But how extensive was this change? How true was this change? How deep was this change? And so we had to put them to the test, as it were. And that's what we were reading about in the 44th chapter of Genesis, where Joseph had given them the grain and sent them off, but he had also... Uh, secreted, secreted, I guess is a better word, uh, the bull into Benjamin's sack. And then he had sent his uh, house steward after them to proclaim that the bull had been stolen and with whomever it was found, that person had to be a slave forever in Egypt. Well, <laughs> when it was found in Benjamin's sack, the brothers were sure that none of them had it, 
But when it's found in, in Benjamin's sack, the brothers, rather than abandoning Benjamin, which they could have done, because they certainly had abandoned Joseph 20 years before, they could have abandoned him and gone back and, and told the whole story to their father, but they did not do that. That's the difference, one of the big differences that had happened. And I believe, even as I made a big emphasis of this last week, I believe Judah was the spark plug of this. And they chose to go back to Memphis with uh, Benjamin and to stand, if, it, if, if you will, before Joseph in trial. As they returned to defend their brother, it was Judah who became the spokesman for the brothers. It was Judah who st stepped forward. And it was Judah's attitude and Judah's pleading that made clear to Joseph that these brothers were not the brothers he had known 20 years before. They had been transformed. By whom? Certainly by the power of Yahweh. And they were different now. And he came to the place where he realized he could be reunited with these brothers. They would understand, they would accept and they could truly be a family as they had never been before. They, he had a hope of a relationship with his brothers and his family that he had never known in his life up to that point, even in the 17 years he had lived at home with his father. Let me again read quickly over the latter part of the 44th chapter so that we can then penetrate into the 45th chapter and, and catch this, this, this moment, this incredible moment of history. Verse 18. This is when they've been brought back and they're standing for, before Joseph after being accused of stealing the bull. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ear and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. In their eyes they saw him as equal with Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Now we have to understand, when they say a little child, they don't mean a little kid, you know, like a three-year-old or something. I mean, Benjamin is in his 20s. He's probably somewhere at this time around 21 or 22. So it's, it's a relative statement here. It's, it's emphasis that they're making, uh, so that Joseph will have mercy upon them because he is... He is young and the father is old. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and said, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces. I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, 
It will come about when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now the next two verses culminate the change, particularly in this man Judah. And at the end of class last week, I explained what this meant for, for all eternity for the coming of Messiah, for all of these, how it all comes together as we understand this change in the life of this man Judah. Now therefore, please let your servant, Judah speaking of himself, remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? This was a different Judah. And last week I pointed out the steps by which he came to this point that the scripture gives us. Four steps by which he came to this point of becoming a Christ figure in the Old Testament. Of being the one from whom would the Messiah ultimately come. And forever the scripture would testify to this man's change by referring to Christ as you do in the book of Revelation as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this man's name is, is forever being uh, spread around the world even today, although sometimes disparagingly, in the name Jew. Now, the 45th chapter. Let's look at the first three verses. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The straw that broke through the facade that Judah had been maintaining, that, that Joseph had been maintaining, was Judah's offer to put himself in the place of his brother Benjamin. For the sake of Benjamin and for the sake of his father, he was sacrificing himself for others. This is the mark of true godliness. This is the mark of true Christ-likeness. We can testify until we're blue in the face of how much we love God and love others, but where the rubber meets the road is where the reality of it is. When we're willing to lay down our life for another, the scripture says, greater love has no man than this. Joseph could not keep it any longer. I mean, he simply could not play the game any longer. He ordered all of the servants out of the room so that he could be alone with his brother, brothers. All the guards, all the others. I mean, there must have been a dozen or more others in the room with him. He ordered them all out, clear the room, that I may be alone with these men. Now, do you think all the servants thought it was wise to, to leave the room and, and leave this man with, with these people who are accused thieves? These hated foreigners, and, and you want to be alone with them? You're nuts, I'm certain some of the servants must have thought. 
But they knew better than to refuse to obey. They dared not hesitate because Joseph didn't say, would you please leave the room? He says, please leave the room. I mean, there was emotion. There was an adamancy to his voice. They dared not resist. And what follows and what we read in these first few verses here of this particular passage is one of the most dramatic moments of all history. I mean, this is great drama. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his incredulous brothers. Now, I hope as we go through this, you can put yourself in the brother's place and understand how almost impossible it was for them to accept his words. I mean, they, it was like we're talking about two different universes here. I mean, we're talking about an alien situation as far as they're concerned. Now, Joseph had cleared the room, and it's interesting, the scripture tells us, though, that he cried so loudly that it could be heard in other parts of the palace, even to where the, the places to, to which his servants and others had gone, the guards. They could hear him crying out loud. And what's interesting here is it tells us that apparently at least one of the servants took it upon himself to trot across to, to Pharaoh's court and, and to inform servants over there so it would go up the grapevine in Pharaoh's court. And it says that Pharaoh's court heard of it also. The word quickly spread that something extremely unusual was going on and that Joseph was somehow related to these aliens who had been so much trouble to him, it would seem. High drama. The last words that the brothers ever expected to hear from the mouth of this man was, I am Joseph. I mean, it's like short circuit for all these guys. I mean, just, you know. There's no way. It didn't compute. Joseph had been virtually dead for 20 years as far as they were concerned. Now, they knew he wasn't dead. Well, they didn't know he wasn't dead, but they, they knew that they had sold him off into slavery, but he'd been gone for 20 years. He was out of their lives, although not totally out of their minds, because they had been deeply convicted in the past few months particularly. This man was so Egyptian. He was so powerful. He was so fearsome. How could he be their younger brother, whose last words that they were certainly heard still echoing in their ears were, please, please don't do this to me. How could this man be that, that brother? Remember their last visual image? Now you can kind of relate to this. Some of you probably have been back to a high school reunion or at least thought about it. And, and a lot of people in high school, the last time you ever saw them, they were 18, right? And so the last image you have of them is at 18, and you go back to the reunion 30 years later, and whoa, they don't look like what you remember. Of course, you don't either, but they don't look as you remember them. And their last visual image of Joseph was as a stripling youth of 17. And therefore, they simply could not adjust. It was impossible for them to conceive of this mature man of dignity and power before whom they had groveled on their faces that this majestic figure who ruled the mightiest nation they had ever known of, this 
is Joseph the dreamer? Now they had already informed him of the welfare of their father Jacob. But it was very natural at the moment of this outburst for Joseph to ask if his father was truly well. Not their father, his father. Is he truly well? Is he truly alive? Years of pent-up longing for a father's love this love he had known so well for 17 years and which had been denied him for 20 years, it just burst forth. I mean, this wasn't just a kind of a casual question, you know, how's dad? I mean, this was a burning desire to know how is his father? Because he loved him deeply. It was a great cry of concern. Notice the scripture tells us that the brothers were completely and totally speechless. Dumbfounded. Their, their circuits were fried. They could not respond. The shock, part of the shock, of course, was, remember, the first in occasion that they came down to stand before Joseph, and every moment up to this very moment, Joseph had never spoken to them except through an interpreter. And suddenly he is speaking to them in Hebrew. <laughs> you know, they couldn't relate. They simply couldn't relate. I, I think Joseph had more than one reason in asking about his father. It was not only the expression of his true concern and his desire to know how his father was, but I think he was trying to cause his thunderstruck brothers to not lose touch with reality. He knew that they were just, you know, they were flipping out over this whole thing, and he wanted to bring them back to reality. To, to talk about a common denominator. He didn't want them to go into shock and stand there like statues for the next three days. But of course, he also wanted more information. They had been very reticent to give information to this, this brusque Egyptian. They'd only given him the information that he basically requested and that which they felt would help him change his mind and maybe have a little mercy, but he wanted to know what families know about each other. He wanted to know what a brother would know about his own father, not what some alien or foreigner is told. You all know that you don't explain, hopefully you don't explain every little family issue to some stranger, but within the family, what is really the condition? What, what is our father what is his real physical and emotional condition? Is he, is he okay, or, or is he really having a very difficult time? Finally, I think his question was calculated to convince his brothers that there is true brotherhood here between him and them. He is their brother. He, Jacob is our father. He's trying to break through. They had been so overwhelmed by guilt over the previous 20 years, and especially during the last few months when this guilt had crescendoed. It had risen to this high point. And, and you remember, as I was reading the passage last week, or it was the week before, Judah confessing the guilt before Joseph and before God. 
Well, in spite of all of Joseph's efforts, the scripture tells us that the brothers were dismayed at his presence. To me, it's a little bit unfortunate that they translated it with that particular word, dismayed. It seems a little bit weak here because the Hebrew word literally means terrified. Now, to me, there's a little bit of difference between being dismayed and being terrified. You know? I get dismayed because something doesn't go right. I get terrified you know, if I'm dangling over a cliff by a thin rope or something. You know? uh, it, it seems like there's a difference here. Uh, it, it refers, uh, the, the word actually is often used in a situation of the re emotional response that rises when one faces an unexpected disaster. Brothers were terrified at his presence. The literal Hebrew there is, they were terrified at his face, or before his face. Panim is the Hebrew word used here. And, and this is the way the Hebrews used to say it. It would say, in one's presence, by using the phrase, before one's face. The face reveals the person. That's the only part of the body that really reveals the person. Now, I mean, there's all this body language stuff that goes on, but the face really reveals the person. It reflects the attitude. It reflects the personality of a person. And that was what was a little bit, quote, dismaying uh, to, to many Americans in their first encounters with American Indians because American Indians tended to have this natural stoicism. It was really hard to tell what they were thinking because their faces seemed to reveal almost nothing. But you go over to the Near Eastern society, and that's not generally the case. In the Near Eastern society of the ancient world and even of the modern world, the tendency is not to be stoic. They tend to be very emotional. And that's one of the reasons why the Tuaregs, the Berbers who, who live out in the desert, wear these masks that cover everything but their eyes. So they don't give away their feelings in a situation there where it might be dangerous for them to do so. The natural flow of, of emotion comes out through the face. They had looked upon the face of the man all these months, many times. And they had come to behold him with fear and awe and to hear him proclaim out of that face that he was their brother whom they had mercilessly sold into slavery 20 years before, struck cold terror into their hearts. And not a little of that is the result of the conviction of God upon their spirits for the evil that they had perpetrated. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve you for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here but God and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household 
and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph perceived his brother's confusion. It wasn't hard to perceive. He perceived their fright. And he understood because he had played a hard-nosed ruler all this time up to this moment. He had not shown him the, an inkling of mercy. And so he could understand their reaction. And so Joseph asked his brothers to do what they had never dared or wanted to do before, and that was to approach within touching distance of Joseph. They'd always stood back in awe, many times on their faces on the ground in Joseph's presence. And now he beckons them to come within touching distance. And he had at least three reasons for doing this. One, of course, was a very practical one, to enable them to speak in lower tones. <laughs> I think he got the feeling that the voice was echoing all through the palace here and that uh, word was being carried. You know, in those days, they didn't uh, have all the soundproofing we have today. And if you have stone walls, and much was built of stone in Egypt or uh, brick, but much of it was stone, either way, you've got echoing through the corridors and the hallways. Uh, you know, there, it's very interesting. Uh, many of us have this uh, kind of a romantic view of what life must have been in early days to be a king or a queen and to have lived in a palace or a castle. And Oh, how wonderful it would have been. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> You're much more comfortable in your home no matter how small, even, a, pardon me, if it's a mobile home. It's far more comfortable than any of these palaces or castles ever were. Because for one thing, they were always drafty, they were usually cold, rodents were running around, and all kinds of little things were crawling up and down the walls. And, uh, you know, there was no soundproofing. It was pretty miserable. Better than the peasants lived in their huts. But nevertheless, uh, not anything compared to what we have. And usually no indoor plumbing, at least not the convenient kind like we have. It, it just wasn't all it seems cracked up to be. So, guys, tone it down. <laughs> it's, it's going through the whole palace, and I'm mostly responsible for it. Uh, it. This is such a highly emotional and revealing situation. He didn't want everybody in the countryside to know all of the intimate details. Secondly, he wanted them to come close to break the physical, to physically break the gulf that existed between them. I mean, there was a vast gulf between them. The mighty ruler of Egypt and these little peons from another country, about as big a gulf as could exist. And he wanted to break that gulf of, of ruler, servant, of, of Egyptian alien, shatter it so that they might understand that they are his brothers. And to reduce space, physical space between people increases intimacy. And, and we understand that. And in American society, that sometimes is, is troubling because not everybody in, around the world uh, adjusts to the space that we like when we're talking with someone. You know, sometimes uh, we, we're very comfortable with a space of uh, several feet between us and someone we're talking to. But ever notice when somebody from maybe a European country or somewhere Latin America comes to talk to you and they're right here, you know, you feel very uncomfortable because you've broken into that space which seems to us to mean that uh, there's an intimacy there which we don't feel, which is being implied by this physical closeness. And so 
what he wanted to do was break that barrier and, and to establish a measure of intimacy. And then thirdly, it was to display trust by allowing them closer. Joseph was exposing himself, making himself vulnerable to attack if they had so chosen because all the guards were gone and he was alone before his 11 brothers. And they could have easily overwhelmed him had they so chosen. So he was displaying trust in them. As they drew close, I don't think Joseph was staring at the ceiling saying, hey guys, come forward. I think he was looking at them right in the eye, one to the other of his brothers as they walked closer to him. And he reiterated his claim, I am Joseph. Do you get it? I am Joseph. Now there is no record. Remember, you, we've, we've studied this in detail up to this point. There is no record that they ever told Joseph the name of the brother that was lost. So first of all, they're hearing him say his name and they never told him the name of the brother that was lost. And then second of all, and what really drives the point home, you can be absolutely sure that when they stood before Joseph earlier, they didn't say, well, the one that's lost is a kid we sold off into slavery in Egypt, right? They're going to tell this to, to, to the, the man in Egypt? No way. They would never have implied such a thing. He, he's lost. He's dead, was the implication they gave. And they didn't, of course, have any details. They didn't know what happened to him kind of type situation. And the man could not possibly have known this secret that was locked in the hearts of these ten brothers, unless he truly was the man he was claiming to be, Joseph. That's why he makes the statement here in, at, in, in verse 4, at the end of it, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Remember the first time he just said, I am Joseph. I am the brother whom you sold into Egypt, confirming it beyond a shadow of a doubt. There isn't any way he could have known unless he had been there and experienced the event. Now Joseph, in effect, takes a position alongside Judah here in displaying a Christ-like attitude. Again, looking at verse 5. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph, at this point, is, is, is revealing a Christ-like attitude, the attitude that Christ himself displayed. When Christ hung on the cross, we have heard so many times, especially if you've been to the Good Friday services in various churches, and heard the seven last words uh, preached. Um, he displayed, Christ himself displayed a heart of love and forgiveness for those who had crucified him by praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Christ, by example, showed what kind of people his disciples were to be. When somebody offends us, hurts us. Our prayer needs to be, Father, forgive them. Well, it may be that they know what they're doing, <laughs> but either way, that's the attitude of Christ. 
When Christ said they don't know what they're doing, what, what did he really mean by that? Did, did he mean that, that they didn't understand that they were crucifying a good man? I don't know, they understood that. And certainly those who were behind it, the Pharisees and the chief priests, were doing it out of abject jealousy and hatred, driven by the prince of darkness. And yet they didn't ultimately know that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Because had they known that, they would have changed. And one of the greatest tragedies of all history has been the fact that in parts of the Christian church, and I use the word Christian in its broad sense here, the Jews have been persecuted for 2,000 years for having crucified the Lord of glory when Christ himself said, Father, forgive them. What right does the church have to not forgive them? The church hasn't even displayed the heart of Christ towards the people of whom Jesus was himself a member. Joseph expressed his forgiveness of his brothers and pleaded with them to accept his forgiveness and God's forgiveness. At this point, I think it, it illustrates the crucial nature of forgiveness. So many people who call themselves Christians are, are become distorted and contorted because they don't know forgiveness. They don't know how to forgive. They won't accept forgiveness. They're too proud to give it or to accept it. And it's just devastating. It's, it's crushing. Forgiveness is an essential key to successful Christian living. Without it, you cannot live the Christian life. It is absolutely paramount that we as Christians, first of all, Ask God's forgiveness regularly. I keep being reminded, and I've mentioned this before, of, of Peter. As Christ was washing the feet of the disciples, he said, oh, no, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of it. So Peter goes overboard the other way. But, but the point that Christ was trying to make was, you're clean, but not quite all. You, you have been redeemed, your life is redeemed, but daily we, we pick up a little dirt, if you will, sin along the way. And, and it isn't that that sin causes us to be lost again, it's just that that sin breaks our communication with the Father, keeps us from, from being where we need to be at each moment so that we can reach out and touch the lives of those around us. And so we need to be clean every day. We need to go to God for forgiveness. And even if it is the 7,941st time we've asked forgiveness for this general thing, hopefully not, but even if it is, that's what he wants us to do. We must ask God's forgiveness regularly. Now, I didn't put this on the outline, but I'd like to read a passage from the 32nd Psalm related to this. Psalm 32, verse 3. And this really relates to these brothers. I mean, you can see how it relates as we go through this passage. It's not directly about them, but it's about them just like it's about us. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. 
My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, God does not let us live our lives with sin without conviction. And if we have no conviction for our sin, we have so hardened our hearts that either we are not true believers and we've been kidding ourselves all along, or we have become so carnal that uh, God's got a lot of work to do. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Notice the contrast from verse 3 to verse 7. Uh, of that particular passage. And the key to the contrast is forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Miserable life. And then God surrounded me with songs of deliverance. And the key to the change was confession and forgiveness. So first of all, it's paramount that we ask God's forgiveness when? Occasionally? Once a year? <laughs> Every day. Hourly if necessary. It be should become an attitude of our hearts. In fact, when we fail, we should be convicted immediately and think, oh God, why did I say that? Why did I make that sign or whatever I did that is not godly? It, you know, it's, it's very humbling, by the way, but it's necessary. Then secondly, we must accept God's forgiveness and believe that he does forgive us because he promises to do so. And, and, and we don't have to crawl on our knees 500 yards across the square of Guadalupe. We don't have to climb the 300 stairs in a tower on our knees we don't have to walk around like the flagellantes did in the Middle Ages with bare backs whipping ourselves in front of the people as we march through the streets. God forgives us because we confess our sin to Him. Why do people do those other things? Because there's a sense in which we want to earn God's forgiveness and not just accept it gratis. We want to feel like we undid our sin by doing something extreme on the other side. And we as evangelicals are not totally free from that. We have a tendency sometimes to think, well, yeah, I did that, so I'm going to deny myself tonight. I'm not going to go to the movie. I'm going to sit home and read my Bible. You know? Sort of like a penance attitude or something. And, and, and that's not the way it is. And I'm not saying we just flippantly confess our sin and think we can go out and do any old thing we want. Obviously, that's not right either. Thirdly, we've got to ask others forgiveness. Not just God, but the one whom we have sinned against. We need to ask their forgiveness and then conversely to accept it when they give it. Sometimes we have a hard time accepting another's forgiveness. 
Quite often this is true in a husband-wife relationship. And the one says, I'm sorry, and the other says, I forgive you. But the one who says, I'm sorry, is not sure the one who says, I forgive you, really means it. You know? And we, we have a tendency sometimes not to just accept it. And then lastly, we must forgive others. We must forgive others. Two passages there on your outline that I would like to, for us to touch on briefly. Ephesians 4.32 be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And Jesus, of course, gave a whole parable uh, upon this particular truth. What right have we to hold a small debt against our brothers when God has forgiven a great debt against that, that we had? had? Notice the key, kindness, tenderheartedness. This is all part of forgiving. If we're tenderhearted, we forgive. If we're not tenderhearted, if we're hardhearted, then forgiveness doesn't come. Pardon me, I, I'm not in, intending anything to anybody in this room here, uh, but when the uh, people asked why it was Moses allowed divorce, Jesus' response was, because of the hardness of your hearts. And, and, and that's so often what happens. It's a hardness of heart that produces a rupture in, in a relationship. If we were tender-hearted one towards another, I think divorce would be a very rare phenomenon in the Christian circle. Um, Colossians 3, verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The church, the evangelical church in America, is ripped apart in many places around this country today because this, this truth, these truths are simply not practiced. People saw, call themselves Christian, but they, they do not put on love. There is not unity. The, the peace of Christ is not there because they're not being thankful. There's no compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We're not bearing with one another in many instances, forgiving each other. We're holding it against each other. And yet Christ gave us the example, just as God in Christ forgave you. What right do we have to hold something against another? We have absolutely no right. You know, some, some people say, oh, it's my right to continue to not forgive that person. No, it's not our right. Not if we're believers, it's not our right. We have no rights like that. It's very, very crucial. Obviously, an essential part of forgiveness is confession. We must acknowledge our sin by confession. Now, as you know, the Catholic Church has, has made a, a ritual out of this, and that's better than nothing, I tell you. To go and, and make a confession through the little screen to a, to a priest is better than no confession at all, by far. 
Because at least the, the truth is coming out and there's a cleansing that comes. And if a person has real faith in God at that time, there's forgiveness, regardless of what the person on the other side of the screen does or thinks. But to, to not have confession uh, is, of course, to not have forgiveness. We must confess, first of all, to God, and then, secondly, to anyone we may have sinned against. And we'll, we'll wind it up here. In 1 John 1, 9, we, I think we all know that verse. It fits so well with all of this. If we confess our sin, or when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us of some of our unrighteousness. No, it says of all unrighteousness. And in James 5, verse 16, we read, Therefore, confess your sin one to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man may accomp will accomplish much, can accomplish much. And sometimes the key to the failure of the application of this passage in the prayer room and the laying on of hands and the putting on of the oil is that the person for whom the prayer is being given or maybe in the hearts of those who are doing the praying, there is no confession of sin. There is no willingness to just throw the heart open for the total cleansing of the spirit, which is what God is after in the first place. And until that's clean, the rest of it cannot follow. And that's, I think, a real critical part of, of the whole minister, elders' ministry of, of healing and, and laying on of the hands is the fact that there's a, it's not just a physical problem, there is a spiritual element to it. I'm not saying that this physical problem is necessarily caused by the, phys, by the spiritual, by a spiritual problem of some sort or another. It may or it may not. But regardless of that, the, the confession of sin and the being clean before God is, is so critical. And I think if an elder comes to lay on hands to somebody to pray for them and he's harboring something in his own mind or heart, he might as well go away because he's a negative influence in that situation, not a positive one. It's got to be clean and open before God, just as the pastor who stands in the pulpit must be that way in order to minister to these people. And there are so many pulpits in this country where God is not doing anything because the pastor's mind and heart is full of junk, unconfessed sin. And it's been exposed so much uh, recently that it's, that it's tragic. Well, let me wind it up with this. The brothers had already inadvertently confessed their sin to Joseph and to God. And let me just turn to those passages quickly and then we'll close. Genesis 42, verse 21 there before Joseph. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when, we plead, when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen, now, this come, now, this, now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood because there was an interpreter between them. 
So inadvertently, they had confessed it all to Joseph, not knowing that he understood what they were saying. And then in verse chapter 44, verse 16, Judah coming before Joseph. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. The Lord has found out our iniquity. That's a statement of confession, inadvertent as it was. It was, nevertheless, a confession. And so by the confession to Joseph and the confession to God, forgiveness came, and Joseph is here trying to deal it out to them at this moment when he reveals his identity. Next week, we're going to focus, first of all, upon Joseph's powerful statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You didn't want to do this. Uh, you, you had no intent of doing something good, but God turned it for good. And boy, does that apply to our lives even today.